Welcome to the 30th episode of Coronavirus the Truth, a podcast that focuses on the facts surrounding the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm Jeremy Kaur, host of the popular New Books in Medicine podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert led the Permanente Medical Group, the nation's largest physician group. He's a healthcare contributor at Forbes.com, a best-selling author, and a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business. Together, we also host the Hit Fixing Healthcare podcast. You can find this episode along with helpful fact-based information on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com. Robbie, each week we begin the show with the most recent and relevant facts of the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on American life. What happened and what does it mean? Jeremy, the post-holiday spike continues, although for the first time in several weeks, the number of new cases is plateauing and beginning to decline. We saw close to 3,000 people dying each day on average, or the end of life happening every 26 seconds. And there were some days since the last episode that mortality numbers were over 4,000, something that was unheard of even in the darkest early days of the pandemic. In a piece I wrote for Forbes four months ago, I predicted we would experience over half a million deaths by the end of this coming summer. Quite a number of people said that was overly pessimistic. It's now possible that number could be closer to 600,000, particularly with the new mutant strain we discussed in our last podcast episode and the ongoing problems with getting people vaccinated. Already we're well past 400,000 total US deaths or more American lives lost in one year than the four-year total for World War II. Much of the news over the past week has focused on the mutant strains, both the one in South Africa and the one in Great Britain. In the last coronavirus, The Truth, we highlighted the greater transmissibility of this new mutant, which will raise the number of people who must be vaccinated to reach herd immunity. Now, there's some very preliminary data from England that this new strain may actually be slightly more lethal. That would be unusual since viruses that kill people most often end up with lesser spread and therefore a reduced evolutionary advantage. However, given that our hospitals are at full capacity in so many geographies, including across much of England, it's possible that the preliminary data reflects supply capacity rather than true viral virulence, we'll have to see what happens. Moreover, it's unclear the impact that the changed spike proteins in the new strains, and it's these spike proteins that make the virus more transmissible. It's unclear what the impact will be relative to immunity, both the protection from prior infection and from vaccination. Three new laboratory studies have looked at this question. They took the new virus, the mutant strain, or a laboratory version that had been modified to replicate it, and they tested it against the antibodies in people's serum. That's the clear component of our blood. They found that there could be diminished protection. 
But I want to be clear for listeners, that doesn't mean that the vaccine won't help. First of all, the efficacy could drop, but it still could provide adequate protection. Second of all, remember this is a laboratory study and all it measures are the antibodies circulating in a person's blood at a given time. And vaccines can activate a variety of immune memory responses which our bodies generate more antibody when we come in contact with the virus. The question remains unanswered. And it's still possible that what we're going to see is that as in flu, we're gonna need annual vaccination or booster shots. The real test will come when researchers see how people fare who've had the vaccine and now they encounter the mutant virus. That information should become available in a few weeks. Also remember from the last show, because the vaccine is an mRNA-based medication, it would be relatively easy to modify the vaccine quickly, unlike a more traditional one. From a technological perspective, the change could be accomplished in about six weeks. For a regulatory one, that's unclear. This is uncharted territory since no mRNA vaccines have been approved and broadly administered, but already Moderna has started testing a vaccine booster to protect people against the South African variant to make the vaccine that they've already received become more effective. All these threats put added pressure in the US and for that matter, the entire world to speed up the vaccination timetable. Essentially, all mutations happen during the replicatory process. And if you stop a virus from replicating and you get there through herd immunity, the new and potentially more transmissible or even more lethal strains simply are not produced. But given how quickly a virus of this nature with high transmissibility comes to dominate, there's a limited amount of time in the United States. Current estimates by researchers using mathematical models are that one of these mutant strains will become the dominant one in the US by the end of March. Robbie, what's happening in Europe right now? Jeremy, the number of cases continues to be extremely high and the new mutant form widely dispersed. Data from London has shown the direct relationship between tightly packed poor neighborhoods and much higher spread and a disproportionate number of deaths. And this pattern of high rates of transmission in certain communities, those in which people are tightly aggregated and have to take public transportation, it's being observed in every nation and it's being made worse in Europe because the vaccine distribution problems in the United States are even worse in many of these nations. In response to the growing threat, the UK, Germany, Ireland, Austria, Denmark, and the Netherlands have all closed their schools. It's like a game of chess with every move we make, the virus having a response. We know that COVID-19 is rarely life-threatening in kids under 10, but we also know that kids have 
an equivalent chance of contracting and spreading the virus. The most recent data, interestingly, shows that communities with open schools, but taking rigid precautions, don't have a higher rate of transmissibility, a higher rate of infection than the ones that have kept their schools closed. The goal is to slow the spread in anticipation of near universal vaccination, boarding up schools could be important, but no one's yet sure of the best path to take. When it comes to COVID-19, there's still much we don't understand. Let's stay on the vaccine issues. Dr. Fauci just talked about 75 to 80% vaccination rates as leading to herd immunity. Is that possible to achieve and in what kind of a time frame? This is one of the most complex questions you can ask due to the huge number of pieces that need to be put in place to reach these extremely high percentages that Dr. Fauci hopes. Let me take it one step at a time. The first is whether there'll be enough doses of the vaccine in the near future. And the answer is dependent on what you consider to be the near future. The first requirement is supply coming from the manufacturer. And that's looking more like the end of summer than the spring. Then there's the distribution and administration problems that we have yet to solve. Although there's no good reason why it shouldn't have already been accomplished. Third, there's the willingness of people to be vaccinated, and that's far from guaranteed. A recent Harris poll showed acceptance is rising compared to three months ago, but a different Reuters poll showed the numbers to be relatively flat and no better than about 50%, even among healthcare professionals who were offered the vaccine in the first phase of the rollout, 30% of them declined. Let me add one twist to the saga that no one's talking about, but it's happening as we speak. And that is the reality that there are over 7 billion people in the world, many of whom are poor and living in nations that don't have the resources to purchase the vaccine, or at least to be anywhere near the head of the line. Maybe they'll be able to get vaccine from one of the manufacturers who appears to be locked out of Europe and North America, but maybe they won't. We still can't be sure whether these alternative vaccines, including the ones coming from China and Russia, will have sufficient effectiveness to fully suppress the coronavirus. And if they can't stop the spread of the virus, as we just said, that is fertile ground for mutation. And once that happens, it's easily carried across borders and over oceans, similar to what we're seeing with the mutant strains of England and South Africa. Putting the pieces together, herd immunity is far from guaranteed and isn't on the near horizon. What we do know is that the longer the delay, the bigger the threat of virus mutation and increased resistance. Using the same chess analogy one more time, we can see the way to checkmate this virus, but it's four or five moves away. The virus does exactly what we want, as we make our moves, we'll win. But if it fools us in the interim, we could find ourselves threatened come fall as much as we are today. Robbie, I've talked about the growing coronavirus fatigue here in Iowa where I live. Is it as bad in the rest of the nation, do you think? Jeremy, unfortunately, 
What's happening in Iowa is more similar to the rest of the country than different. A recent paper in the journal of the AMA showed that social distancing is plummeting, particularly the more isolating components of the process. Comparing people's actions in April to November, researchers saw a 30 to 40% decline in adherence. Last spring, 80% of people stayed at home except when absolutely necessary. Now it's 41%. Similarly, 64% of individuals avoided contact with people not living in their home. Today, it's down to 38%. Finally, 80% of families prohibited anyone from coming into their homes. But today, that's declined to 58%. Fatigue from coronavirus is present, and I believe it will continue to grow until we have the ability to vaccinate enough people to diminish the restrictions that we know can save lives. Robbie, on our Fixing Healthcare podcast this season, we're looking at the culture of medicine. I'm sure you remember the powerful episode on racism we did with Dr. Amanda Calhoun. In it, we talked about how if two people, one a black patient and one a white patient came to the ER, during the time testing kits were grossly inadequate in number, the white person was far more likely to be tested despite both having similar symptoms and clinical findings. What's happening with vaccine distribution? Jeremy, as I think you're predicting, according to Kaiser Health News, which is unconnected with Kaiser Permanente, Black Americans are being vaccinated at far lower rates than white Americans. And that's despite two factors which should drive vaccination rates higher for African-Americans. The first we've talked about many times in the show, and that's the three times higher mortality rates for black individuals. And the second is that many African-Americans have easier access today due to representing a higher percentage of people working in hospitals and therefore being eligible for the first phase. Of course, we can't be sure the exact reason. Part of the problem is communication. Individuals in food service and housekeeping are less likely to get the information needed about vaccine administration or have the computer access at work to sign up for the vaccination itself. The second is the documented mistrust of the healthcare system based on past negative experiences and ongoing systemic racism that Dr. Calhoun described, but the likely impact, regardless of the etiology, regardless of the cause, is a higher mortality that we know for certain. Robbie, our What's Positive segment each episode continues to be a listener favorite. What do you have for us this week? Jeremy, let me offer two rays of light, both of which we've touched on before, but are now playing out even better than we discussed or expected. We talked in the last episode about Israel having vaccinated 10 times higher percentage of its population than in the United States, since then its vaccination rate continues to rise. And now there's epidemiologic data indicating that the nation has reached herd immunity with an effective 
are not less than one. Assuming the numbers hold, that means that now on average, an infected person is transmitting COVID-19 to less than one other person. And when that happens, the virus slowly dies out. Israel has now started to vaccinate high school students, which should further accelerate the decline in the number of infections. Let's keep our fingers crossed that the data holds up and that our nation can replicate the excellence that they've achieved. The second positive story is how minuscule the flu is this year. Remember, in most years, approximately 40,000 people died from the influenza virus. And January is usually a very deadly month. Compared to previous years, at least based on laboratory testing for influenza among potentially infected people, the incidence of flu is less than 5% of where we were last year. If this trend holds for the next couple of months, we will have avoided the double whammy that we feared of COVID-19 and the flu. Robbie, we talked early in the pandemic about the huge number of deaths, over 40% of them, over 40% of the total coming from residents of nursing homes. And we've said that based on the Pareto principle or 80-20 rule, that maximal effort should be expanded for these individuals. A year after the onset of the problem, how are we doing? Unfortunately, Jeremy, this story remains bleak. In many areas of the country, the number of cases and subsequent deaths have reached the highest level we've seen in this pandemic. And so far, vaccination efforts have been disappointing, both for residents and staff of these nursing facilities. And the combination has driven the number of cases and deaths higher and higher. Anytime you have a large number of people indoors in close proximity, spread will happen. It doesn't matter if the setting's a meat processing facility, a fraternity house, or a nursing home. We know what to do in each case, but often we don't do it. Sometimes the reason is short-term economics, although the long-term expense when people get sick from having to provide critical care is rarely included in the calculation. And sometimes it's just an unwillingness to socially distance as much as is required. But in every case, the consequences are inevitable when we close our eyes to what is happening and the implications for the future. And that's the tragic story of nursing homes and why despite housing fewer than 5% of the population, they account for 40% of the deaths in our nation and in many other countries around the globe. Jeremy, when I talk with people about the coronavirus pandemic, there are seemingly two timeframes that they consider. The first are the people who look back at the past year and talk about all that has been lost. People who have died, education has been missed, events that have failed to happen and so on. Others talk about the future, the next six months and the optimism generated by the vaccine. Which of these dominate the conversations that you hear in Iowa? 
Robbie, I would say it's easily the negativism. There has not been a lot to be positive about in the last year. Missing funerals of loved ones or awkwardly attending them via Zoom, not being able to visit dying relatives in the hospital, canceled weddings, not being able to socialize with your friends, lost wages, jobs, or entire businesses, education for children that has been disrupted. And I don't mean to sound unprofessional or too negative, but everyone has dealt with a lot. At this point, it's hard to believe life will ever get back to how it should be. I mean, all you really have to do is walk around in any downtown and see the economic devastation or hear people talk about struggling to educate their kids. I think for most people I know, it's a uh, believe it when I see it thought process. Robbie, we've received encouragement from dozens of listeners for your thoughts about President Biden and his approach to bringing the pandemic under control. We've also heard some serious concerns about it as well. What are your thoughts around Biden's approach to the coronavirus so far? Jeremy, it's too early in his presidency to reach any conclusions, but several things seem clear. The first is that the new president wants to underpromise and overdeliver. As an example, 100 million doses in 100 days, his initial goal is challenging, but that vaccination rate is not much better than what we were achieving in the weeks prior to his inauguration. Moreover, that's 100 million doses, which means only 50 million people or 25% of the number of individuals needed for herd immunity. At that rate, we'd be talking about another full year of COVID-19 before restrictions could theoretically be lifted. As you know, yesterday, the president upped the goal to 150 million over 100 days, or 1.5 million per day, and announced plans to buy additional vaccine doses by the end of the summer for the US. Of course, that's better, but this process should not be about, in quotes, goals. Maximizing the number of people immunized represents a well understood supply chain challenge taught in every business school in the nation. Ultimately, regardless of the product, there's a series of steps from maintaining the ingredients needed to the manufacturing itself, to issues around distribution, administration, and record keeping. First year business students are taught to identify the bottleneck, which is the rate limiting step, and then find ways to expand it. At some point, no matter what you do, you reach a limit, at least for the immediate term. The president and his medical experts should tell us what that is and how it ties into the number of doses that we can expect to be administered. That's how confidence and trust are generated. We don't wanna cut or take safety risks, but we also don't want bureaucratic delays at any step along the way. Phrased differently, if the limiting factor relates to machines capable of producing any more vaccine than 1.5 million doses per day, then that's the best we can do. We don't want to do anything that will risk the health of its recipients. But if the problem's an inadequate number of refrigerators or syringes or people to administer the vaccine, there are dozens of options that our nation can embrace. 
150 million doses every 100 days will take us into the fall to generate herd immunity. That's better than 100 million doses that would have taken us to 2022, but not as good as 200 million doses that will get us over the hump by the end of summer. Vaccination is the game changer. Where is the choke point and what can we do to expand it? Having said that, I do wanna give the new president high marks for a few of his executive orders that he put in place to combat the virus. Nine months ago, I chided President Trump for not using the Defense Production Act to rapidly manufacture protective equipment for healthcare providers and testing kits for diagnosis and tracing. President Biden has begun that process by ordering the appropriate federal agencies to use the provisions of the Defense Protection Act to maximize both. Similarly, as an order for the Federal Emergency Management Agency, or FEMA, to set up 100 additional vaccination centers over the next month is the type of action a president needs to take in response to a national disaster, whether that's weather-related or virus-induced. With schools and stadiums closed, there's no reason this shouldn't be possible. Finally, as order of mask wearing in federal buildings and public transportation, including on planes and trains, along with mandatory testing of everyone arriving from another nation, will help slow the transmission. One thing is clear, voluntary encouragement at state's discretion doesn't solve the problem, given the free access Americans have to travel across state lines. A year into this pandemic, our nation continues to flounder. We need as aggressive presidential leadership now as we would in a time of war. I don't know how quickly with maximal presidential pressure, our nation can secure 500 million doses of a highly effective vaccine and put in place the distribution and administrative steps needed to vaccinate 250 million Americans. But whatever the shortest amount of time can be, that should be the president's goal and commitment. As a reminder to listeners, this episode is available on our website, fixinghealthcarepodcast.com, and on all podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and share it with your friends and family. To submit a question or comment to the hosts, please visit our contact page on our website or send us a message via Twitter, LinkedIn, or Facebook. Thank you for listening to Coronavirus The Truth and have a great day.